Oh, hello. Actually seeing so many people in person, it's pretty exciting. I'm going to take a photo, hang on. Just so those of you at home be able to see um, the brothers and sisters who are here with us today. Oh, gee, gosh, I have to, get, have to stand back for this one. Ah, here we go. All right, everyone wave hello. Nice. All right. I'm a bit echoey. Um, <clears throat> and uh, those of you at home are joining us, or maybe some of you are in, in park together or in each other's homes, so glad you could join us. Um, it's very exciting to be back, isn't it? I don't know what to do anymore. I had to wear pants. I didn't really have to when I recorded. It was only... Anyway, you don't need to know that. All right. I wonder what conversation topic immediately gets your eyes glazed over in boredom. I'm sure everyone can think of a conversation topic that as soon as someone starts, you're like, zone out. For me, it's home improvement. Anything to do with that? Anything to do with gardening? All right? Nothing gets me as bored as talking about home improvement and renovations and gardening and landscaping. Um, you reach a time in your life, I'm a bit over that now, but I, you know, probably five years ago, and, and some of you in this age group, kind of in your, I don't know, mid to late 30s, that's all people talk about. Because you know, you've, you've finally bought a place and, 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 and they just want to talk about renovations and what they're doing next. And I'm okay if you show me before and after photos, right? But when you go into details, like what kind of tiles are you using? What, what shade of white? On the walls, there's a white, off-white, bone, beige, ivory, or cream. Like, what material is the splashback in your kitchen? What kind of joints in your cabinet? I'm just like falling asleep. Now, some of you love this. I know, some of you love this. Not me. I have zero interest in shows like The Block. And there's a couple of reasons why. One reason is I am not a handyman. Second reason is we can't afford to reno. And the third reason, mainly, because it's not my house, Okay. It's not my house. So you go into all these details, and I'm just like, mm. But what if it is your house? What if you're about to buy or you've bought, and it's your house? Then details actually matter a lot, don't they? Like, you want to know the exact dimensions. You want to know exactly the materials, the color, the build. Now, Joshua 13 to 21, uh, which we're actually going to cover all eight chapters in, in some way, uh, it's the third section of the book, and it's on the distribution of the land. Now, the section before it, chapters 5 to 12, we saw super exciting chapters, okay? They're conquering the land. You've got the Jericho, the Ai, the Gibeonites, the battles, like that's all that in, in section 2. Here, section 3, what do we get? Details, details, details. We get towns and cities and rivers and geography, and you end up with something like this, which for most of us is cool but kind of boring, right? Unless, of course, you're Israel. Unless you're Israel. Like, if you're Israel, then these details matter enormously, don't they? Um, this section uses the word inheritance to talk about the land 43 times. Right? 43 times the word is inheritance, not just land that they're getting, it's their inheritance, because that's what God wants them to see. So imagine you are at the will reading of your great aunt, and you get to be one of the inheritors. Now, if you're at the will reading, 
You care about the details, right? Because you're about to get something. And so every single detail matters because it's your inheritance. That's what it's like for Israel. Now, you might be thinking, well, what does that matter to us? We're not Israel. Well, let me show you a passage from Hebrews chapter 4. Have a look on the screen. It says, For if Joshua had given them, that's Israel, rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from His. Let us, that's us Christians, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. It's a lot in there, but let me try and tell you what it's trying to say. It's saying Israel, right? Israel that we read about in Joshua, they never received fully what was promised. And some of that we talked about last week. Um, the, the, the idea of rest is, is sort of shorthand for all of that stuff, right? Possessing the land, settling in the land, enjoying the land. Their disobedience meant that they never entered it. But their disobedience, says Hebrews, is a warning and a challenge for us. That's us today, Christians. See, we still have a promised rest, a promised land that we're going to enter into, except ours is a way better inheritance and rest. It's actually the new creation, right? But here's the warning. Not everyone will make it. Not everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. Not everyone who is sitting in church today. Not everyone who's streaming in to church today will make it. Part of us making every effort is to learn from these chapters. So, let's do that, hey? Let me pray, and we'll get into the details. Father God, our hearts are full of holy fear when we think and know and read about Israel's experience. They experienced so much, and yet many of them did not make it. We pray that by your Spirit, you may cause us not to be like them. Help us to hear your word and to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me just give you a quick recap. Remember, the people of God are so close to receiving the rest, all right, all that God had promised them from thousands of years ago, how far back the promises go. Um, now, it's important to remember that their life in the land, and the reason why it's called rest is because it's meant to make you think of what happened on the seventh day when God created the universe. Remember, on the seventh day, He rested. So their inheritance of the land is like a renewal of Eden, it's the new land. It's the new Garden of Eden-like. And Israel are to be like the new Adam. Now, these chapters are Joshua giving the blueprint of how these 12 tribes of Israel were to divide up this land that they've conquered and now occupy. And, of course, details are going to be the key. So, um, you know, we won't read all of the details because if you read it yourself, actually, it's worth doing. But let me just give you a glimpse of the kind of thing so chapter 15, the allotment for the tribe of Judah, that's one of the tribes according to its clans, extended down to the territory of Edom, to the desert of Zin, in the extreme south. Their southern border boundary started from the bay at the southern end of the Dead Sea, crossed south of the Scorpion Pass, continued on to Zin, went over to the south of Kadesh Barnea, then it ran past Hezron to Adar and curved around to Karka. It passed along Asmon and joined the Wadi of Egypt, ending at the Mediterranean Sea. This is their southern boundary, okay? If you try to read these chapters in one, you probably fall asleep. Again, not very exciting, unless, of course, unless you're Israel. Yeah? 
unless you're Israel, in which case every reference, every boundary, every geographical feature matters because this is your inheritance. Now, for us, of course, these details don't matter, but as I said, God has made us promises too, hasn't He? And for us, the promises of God's to us, I want you to know today, right, this is a big idea for today's sermon, is that His promises to us also matter when details come in. It's a different set of details, but they matter. Details matter. Now, I say this because some of us live as though details are too little to trouble God with. I mean, sure, He's promised to provide, but you know those financial troubles that you might have that you can't afford rent this week or you can't pay for the kids' school uniforms or your job insecurity? Well, surely God is too big to care about those details. I mean, God promises to be with me, but my minor relational strange, my strains, my bouts of loneliness, surely that's not really important enough for God to care, right? Is that how you think sometimes? You know, you pray the big prayers, but the details, I don't want to trouble God with that. What, God, what does God say though? God says, no, 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 details matter to me. Look, look at what he says in places like Matthew 6. Jesus says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? It comes down to clothing. And then Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. You see, God wants you to know that with every promise, how it works itself out in all the nitty, gritty, minor details in our lives, that all of that matters. All of it matters. Now, more of that later. Um, okay, point number two. From last week, though, we remember we looked at how there was a lot of unfinished business. The war has been won, but the battles are still to be fought. It's a little bit like, you know, you've just bought a house, you've paid the deposit, you've signed the deed, you've exchanged the keys, but there's still a lot of work to be done before you can move in. That's sort of like the situation here in Joshua. So if you uh, have a look at references like Joshua 13, at the beginning of this section, when Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, you are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over, right? Still work to be done. Uh, later on in Joshua 18, Joshua said to the Israelites, how long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land of the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you. Yeah? Unfinished business. How did Israel do with its unfinished business? Well, if you were with us last week, you kind of know the answer, right? But the answer is not so great at all. In fact, these chapters, this section is really, apart from all the kind of boring bits of the boundaries and stuff, it's actually a list of all the failures to take full possession. And so you get... So many references, tribe after tribe. So Judah, we saw Judah before. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. Uh, verse 16, this is talking about Ephraim, another tribe. They did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Geza. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. Chapter 17, Manasseh, another tribe. Yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. And then uh, chapter 19, when the territory of the Danites, Dan was another uh, tribe, was lost to them, they went up and attacked Leshem, took it, 
put it to the sword and occupied it. They settled in Leshem and named it Dan after the ancestors. That last one's really tragic, okay? So Dan is one of the tribes. They lost territory that was theirs, conquered. They lost it. And instead of taking the territory back, they decide to raid and take over a peaceful town that wasn't supposed to be theirs, all right? You see, you get these failures, and it's not just tragic, because if you start looking at them in, the, in light of the storyline of the whole Old Testament, they're not just tragic, they're actually ca- catastrophic, right? They're, cat- they're a catastrophe. You remember, the reason why God wanted Israel to fully possess the land and completely eliminate the Canaanites was that, well, not just that it was an instrument of God's judgment. Right? We're told in the Bible prior to this that God had put up with them for hundreds of years until their wickedness got as wicked as it could possibly get. They were an instrument of judgment. But it was also to protect His people, you remember. Because if they failed to, well, drive out these Canaanites and destroy them, if they stayed in the land, then their false gods and their false worship would be like a cancer that's not fully eradicated and cut out. It's just going to multiply and make the whole people of God disease, which is actually what it did. Now, for us, coming back to us, followers of Jesus today, God's command to fully possess and eliminate the Canaanites does not apply to us all right, in physical warfare in any sort of way, right? It does not. But the principle is there, and it's applied in the New Testament when it comes to spiritual warfare, isn't it? You know what I mean by that, right? Spiritual warfare. The New Testament in places like Colossians 3 calls us to put to death sin in our lives, to put them away, says Colossians 3. I have it there on the reference for you. Because those sins that we keep alive, that we might nurse or feed or keep in darkness at the back of our lives, no one sees them, what do they do? Well, they're like cancer. They will pollute and they will spread and they will destroy and they will enslave us. Siegfried and Roy were famous uh, magicians performed out of Vegas, and they were famous for having, uh, at one time, a white lion. It's a pretty cool trick, right, to have a white lion that obeyed them. Pretty cool until 2003 when Roy was attacked by this lion and nearly killed. Moral of the story, don't keep a wild animal, right? Sin is like that. You cannot keep sin around and expect not to get burnt or bitten, Now, some of you will know that pretty well. Maybe most of us will know that pretty well. There are secret sexual sins, maybe, in your life. Or maybe it's anger. No one else except your family members see it. Or jealousy bubbling up in your heart. Or bitterness that you can't get rid of, unforgiveness. Or maybe it's greed. Or dishonesty, lies piled upon lies. Now remember, God wants us to care about these details. He he promises freedom and joy as He makes us more like Jesus. But remember last week we talked about how sanctification, right? Becoming more like Jesus is a partnership. It's synergistic. It's a partnership between us and God. We have a role to play, a very important. If we don't kill sin, sin will kill us. 
If we don't expose sin, if we don't confess sin, repent of it, eradicate it, they will destroy us and we will fail like the Israelites. I mean, it's that serious. Now, is that easy? No, absolutely not. But neither was it easy for Israel too, right? Remember, they failed pretty badly. These chapters hint at that. So we've got to learn from their warning of their failure. But thankfully, these chapters also hold up a very positive, inspiring model. And that's what we're going to go to now. Let's have a look again at those verses that we read out. Uh, it's not on the overhead, so you might have to keep your Bibles open. It's on the app. So verse 6, let me pick up again. Let's read about old Caleb, who I think is really, um, he, he's really the Chuck Norris of the Bible. But anyway, if you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at a Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly, So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to the battle as I am now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. You've got to read this and admire Caleb, right? He is such an admirable, lovable guy. And and you should love him because he is a contrast, the opposite of Israel. And the key idea comes up a few times in this passage is that Caleb was whole hearted. He gave his heart completely to God. Other translations, he followed the Lord completely. That's what we want, right? Wholehearted devotion. Now, what did that look like for him? Well, look again at his words, right? He's 45 years ago, he says, they were on the edge of the land. Israel sent 12 spies, one from each tribe. He represented the tribe of Judah to check out the land. That's in Numbers 13 and 14. Ten of them rebelled against God's command because they saw the Anakites there, descended from giants, and they're freaked out. Only two remained faithful. Who are they? Joshua and, of course, Caleb. Caleb was faithful back then. He was determined back then. But now what is he saying? He's saying, hey, 45 years is gone. I am still that guy. I have not changed. I'm still trusting in God's promises. I'm still as determined to claim all that God has promised me. 45 years may be a long wait, but nothing has changed as far as I'm concerned. What a guy, huh? I wonder if you know Christians like that. You know, so much of a Christian, there is Christian celebrity culture, you'll know that, especially since the internet, celebrates the young, the savvy, the cool megachurch pastors with their cool sneakers. There's actually a whole website dedicated to pastors and their sneakers. I've noticed how American Celebrity pastors are wearing sneakers worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Let me tell you now, don't look there. I mean, the sneakers, yeah. I mean, don't look 
to those celebrity pastors. Look to the grandparents at your own church, at our church, or the wider Christian community. Do you know some of them? People in their 70s and 80s who still follow Jesus. Find them, have them in your life, right? They're really worth following. They're really worth getting to know. Because the Christian life, friends, is not a sprint. It is a marathon. So you need people like old Caleb, don't you? They're so precious and so important for younger Christians like us. Now, there's a reason why uh, Caleb could remain faithful for so long. For so long, it's not because of him. Somehow he's so great. Right? Remember, faith isn't important because of the size of faith. Faith is important because of the object of your faith, who you have faith in. He's so faithful because he knew the faithful God. You see, what's 45 years? Seems long to us, right? But it's been 450 years since God made these promises. And if God hasn't changed, why should Caleb? Why should we? Now, that is a huge model for us. Again, my generation and yours, if you're younger than me, we're not so great at waiting, are we? But don't we have even more reason to see God's faithfulness to His promises and trust it? Look what 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says to us. It says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes or fulfilled in Jesus. No matter how many promises, the thousands, tens of thousands of promises God has made in the Bible, all of them are yes in Jesus. Now, Caleb hung on for 45 years because he knew from experience how God could deliver on his promises in, 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 in it, saving them from slavery in Egypt in being with them in the wilderness, in the desert, and then into battle. But I want to tell you, we have so much more. And that's the perspective of Paul in 2 Corinthians, right? We have way more. We have experienced and seen with the eyes of faith so much more. We have the Son of God who came from heaven to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve to die, to rise again, to leave an empty tomb, to pour out His Holy Spirit, to dwell in our hearts by that Spirit. That's what we've got. No one in the Old Testament got to experience that. In fact, the New Testament says they envy us. Old Caleb is in heaven right now envying us for all that we've experienced and seen. And so don't you see, we have even more reason not to waver in trusting God's unchanging faithfulness. All the more reason than even Caleb. Look at this promise of God to us. Our generation, our time, not Caleb's. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You, you see that promise? All things. Graciously give us all things. Try and fill out the details of the all things. That's a challenge today. That's a promise you can bank your life on, isn't it? If he gave you his son, how will he not also give you everything that you need. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this promise can be yours today. Turn to Jesus, trust in Him, right? And God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, He will also give you everything that you could possibly need in your life and into eternity. And where all this leads for Caleb... 
is his bold request. Let me read our verse 12 again. He says, Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. By the way, every time Anakites, these people are mentioned in the Old Testament, it's to stress how strong and mighty and mean they were. Okay, they are descended from giants. They were huge. They were fierce warriors. But you see, Caleb mentions them. He's not phased at all. It's a very simple equation for him. God promised, so let me go and claim it. Caleb is a complete contrast, as I said, to Israel in these chapters. Um, let me give you an example. We won't read it, but um, the tribes of Joseph. Joseph consisted of two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, but let's treat them together. In chapter 17, um, if you want the reference, 17, 14 to 18, um, they complained to Joshua, hey, we're a big tribe, we don't get enough land, give us more. But here's the twist, okay? The reason why they didn't have enough land isn't because they didn't get allocated enough land, but because the land they got allocated, they were too scared to take. All right? So they wanted Joshua to give them more land in bits that they don't have to fight for because they don't want to take the land that they were given because they're too scared. Do you see what a big contrast that is to Caleb? Caleb says he's looking at the land not yet taken from the meanest and toughest and biggest inhabitants, and he says, I call shotgun. That's mine. I'm 85 years old, but I haven't changed. God hasn't changed, so saddle me up and let me at him. That's Caleb. So wrapping up, do you see how these chapters might speak to us today? Are we willing to go after the promises of God in the details of our lives? In the details, in the nitty-gritty, in the bits we're tempted to think, oh, God won't bother, I shouldn't bother God. Or God doesn't care, that's my business, not His. Will we go after His promises with grit and tenacity in the details? Will we knock and keep on knocking? Will we pray and keep on praying? Will we make every effort and not stop until we receive? When others compromise, when others get jaded and disappointed with God, when others stop waiting and asking, what will you do? Maybe you're single and you're so tired of holding the course. You're so tired of being patient. It's so much easier to compromise by dating and marrying an unbeliever or take shortcuts to satisfy your sexual urges. What will you do? Will you trust in God's promises to be with you in your struggle, to satisfy you in your hunger, to give you all you need to stand up under temptation? Or maybe it's that prayer you've been praying for so long for someone to come to know Jesus. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your spouse. Or the prayer to see the light of day with that crippling depression or illness. Or the prayer not to have to worry about that next job or the next paycheck. Or the prayer to be able to conceive and have children. Have you given up believing and asking? Now, I'm going to be careful here. I'm not saying that God will always give what we ask for in every circumstance, even if they're good things. But let me tell you that God has promised a few really important things. He's firstly promised that your prayers matter to Him. As his child, and we spoke about prayer a few weeks ago, right? 
It matters to him. He hears it and he has promised that our prayers, in partnership with him, prayer is effective. Prayer changes circumstances. He's promised those things. He's also promised that if his answer is no or wait, he will give us all that we need as we wait, and he will satisfy any lack if the answer is no. Those are his promises. But our issue is we mostly stop asking and praying, not because we've received an answer, but because we've been tired of waiting for an answer. And so we just stop. You'll know that one of my heroes is George Mueller. It's probably like third time I've talked about him in the last month. Um, he was asked once if he had the supernatural gift of faith. Just to remind you, uh, George Mueller in the 19th century founded and maintained five orphanages ran over 100 schools, took care of over 10,000 orphans in his long life. And he funded all of that without ever borrowing money, without ever asking for money. He would pray, and God would almost, miraculously every time, or sometimes in ordinary circumstances, but every time God would provide. And so he was asked later in his life, Hey, George, you know, do you have the supernatural gift of faith? Because you seem to pray and miracles happen. If anyone had the supernatural gift of faith, surely George Mueller did. Do you know what he answered? He said, no, I don't. What? No, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't think he has the supernatural gift of faith. Now, why? He said this. It's because he thinks that the gift of faith in the Bible, the gift of supernatural faith, is believing in things that God has not promised to give. Right? Believing and seeing God deliver these things miraculously, that's the gift of faith. But Mueller says, that's not what I've been asking God for. You see, I've been asking for things that God has promised. Didn't God prov- promise to provide for our needs? Matthew 6, right? Just as he clothes the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. He's provided, he's, he's promised things like food and clothing and shelter. And Mueller is saying, I've simply asked for these things, for these orphans. Now to us, they seem like they were all miraculous and impossibilities. To him, they were just what? They were details, you see, details attached to the promises that God had already made. And so he said, it's not the gift of faith to ask and believe that God would give these things he was already promised. It's just ordinary faith. For us then, and maybe um, get a chance to over lunch, there's a few people here, if you're um, meeting at home or with others, just there's some questions to think about for response. What areas of your life, specific areas of your life, might you still be waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled? Right? Get specific. What are they? What are they? Don't think general. And is there any part of God's word today that has helped you or will help you as you wait? I certainly hope and pray so. Let's pray. We'll get the uh, band up. Father, we find waiting so hard. We found waiting really hard in the last few months just with lockdown, but in our lives, hearing your promises and not seeing them fulfilled just yet, we give up so easily. We shirk back in fear and in disappointment. We are so much like the Israelites, but we ask that you would make us like Caleb, that you would give us faith, ordinary faith, like George Mueller, 
And you would help us most of all to look at Jesus. Jesus who satisfies, Jesus who fills us, Jesus who reminds us that if he died for us, that every single thing that you have promised, that you will do. We pray it in his name. Amen.